Well, good morning, everyone. Oh, that's good. And uh, at least I know you're there. It's good. Sometimes I'm not sure, but uh, that's good. We welcome those of you who are guests. We always have a, a number on these Sunday mornings. We're delighted that you're here. If you have any questions, you can see one of us after the service. That includes me. All right, let's go to John chapter 7 as we continue our exposition of the Gospel of John. We're going to deal with the first 17 verses. Now, something I rarely do unless I'm pressed for time. This is one of those. Uh, I want us, uh, we're going to read the scripture as we move along. One other thing, it's not the first time. I do this all the time, but I just want you to know, when I get to narrative material, this is mostly narrative and and not discourse. It's uh, one of the things that I often do because it's just, I've told you this before, it's just my eyes when I come to Scripture. I'm always, one question is, what does this mean by what it says? The other thing is to make observations about contemporary significance of what we're reading in history. This is a classic passage for that. So let me read the first several verses of John 7. We want to get through verse 17 if possible. I really want to get through verse 17. And after these things, uh, going back uh, sometime to the, uh, to Jesus uh, performing the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, after these things, Jesus is walking in Galilee. For any who don't know, that's the northern area of Israel. For he was unwilling to walk in Judea. Why was that? Because the Jews, when it says Jews in the gospel, normally that's not just referring to the Jewish people in general, but speaking to that element that was hostile to Jesus by this time. Skeptical. Because the Jews were seeking now the the knives are out. They're seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of tabernacles, was at hand. Josephus, the contemporary historian, tells us it's hard to believe if you've been there. It's really hard to believe, but he knew what he was talking about. He said on these three major feasts that as many as 200 22 million people plus 700 were typically there in Jerusalem. Just, that's unbelievable. Imagine in Portland that on certain times that many people would swell the local population. Anyway, big crowd. So his brothers... Therefore said to him, his brothers, yeah, his brothers after the flesh who were born after the baby Jesus was born of a virgin. Mary and Joseph had other children. His brothers, you don't like the tone of this. They said, ah, get out of here. Go into Judea that your disciples, you notice they don't include themselves in that number because they weren't, may also behold your works Let them see what you're doing. Look, brother, no one does anything in secret 
when he himself seeks to be publicly known, they didn't understand him at all. If you do these things, if all the press, all the media is reporting these things and you're doing them, uh, come out and show yourself to the world if you really want to be known. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Jesus therefore said to them, My time is not yet at hand. Your time is opportune. You can go anytime you want. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it, and its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I will not go up to the feast at this time, because my time, whatever that means, has not yet fully come. And having said these things to them, he stayed, that is, for a time in Galilee. Let's talk about all that. You see, you see here, it's clear enough what's going on. You, you had some family tension in the family of Jesus. Nothing wrong with Mary and Joseph. There was something wrong with the family that they had when it came to Jesus. They weren't believing in him. I asked myself, so the other things, okay, what, what's a significant, a significance of that? There's one very clear, I mean contemporary. Many of you have things like that in your own home. Your family is divided over Christ. Adhering to God's will does at times occasion social tension, in this case, domestic conflict. Matthew chapter 10 gives us a little, a little uh, light on that. Do we have it up there, guys? Here it is. Jesus said, this still reverberates across the centuries. It's still here with us. I don't want you men to think that I've come to bring peace on earth. Remember, peace on earth, goodwill to men. That verse is often misunderstood. I have not come to bring peace in this time, the time that he was there on earth ministering. All right? Do not think I've come to bring peace, oops, but a sword. Wow. I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Well, let's go in verse 36. And here's that social tension I'm talking about, sometimes right within families, today, not just then. A person's enemies will turn out to be those who are of his own household, oftentimes. Well... <clears throat> Jesus does not mean that he, Jesus Christ, initiates those conflicts within our families and within the, our general circles of what should be friendships, employees. But he is oftentimes the occasion of them. He does not cause these divisions, but he's the lightning rod that attracts them. And he attracted them within his own family, which at this point was unbelieving. I said at this point. James, his brother, later turned out to be the head of the church in Jerusalem. Now, this verse explains why Jesus is confining his ministry at this time to the northern regions of Galilee. 
At the bottom, what we have here is hostility of darkness to light. The forces of evil seek in every generation this one. We can see it rising like black clouds. They seek to suppress what is good. In this case, embodied in him who is the source and son of all goodness, the son of God in the flesh. Folks, I'm telling you, this is very important for every man and woman in this room who knows Jesus Christ. Don't just think we're going to coast in here and out of here. Nothing has changed. We see our whole culture awash and convulsed with the same demonic influence that was affecting Jesus' family right here. Jesus told us explicitly that if the powers and pawns of darkness put a bull, bull, a bull's eye on our Savior, we can be sure they will target his servants as well. I'm saying it's here and it's coming. Go to John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20. Later on in this gospel, Jesus gives us these words. All right. Let's, I'll go to John 15. It's easy enough. John 15, verses 18 through 20. Well, there it is. There it is. Thank you, guys. Magically appears. If the world hates you and believe you me, you don't know how many lay people I've had come to me, one just recently, one in this church, and say, Pastor Jim, what do you do about all this hate that is coming our way? People are noticing it. You can see it online. One I told you about maybe a year ago. A sign, some young man looked to be maybe in his mid-30s, carrying a big sign in front of a big crowd, says, if Jesus comes again, we'll kill him again. Well, if they went after Jesus that way, they're going to come after you that way. Jesus said it. This is not your pastor's opinion. If the world hates you, I have trouble keeping my glasses and my eyes together. If the world hates you, Jesus said, I want you to know that it also hated me before it ever hated you. That's the reason. Remember what I said to you. A slave, we're his servants. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they keep my word, they will also keep yours. Verse, not a verse, but a, pass, a point I made last week. If people resonate with Christ, they will resonate with you. If they don't, they won't. And that's what's happening out there. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one, the Father who sent me. Well, that's what's a boil out there. What God appears to be doing is what he's done before. 
he's just kind of pulling back the safety fences and letting the demonic, to a certain extent, have its way. And just as the devil came after our Lord Jesus Christ, thinking to destroy him by putting him on the cross, so he's going to do to us, the church, the Christian church, not just here. Let me explain something. Many of you and others ask me all the time, I get notes radio, do you think the Lord's coming is near? And, of course, everybody expects me to say, Oh, yes, I really do. First of all, a disclaimer. I do not know, nor does anyone know. If you hear anyone say it's near, they don't know what they're talking about. It doesn't mean it's not true. But I can tell you what is happening, and I've explained this many times. This much I know. In America, we have lived for most of our career, or most of our history, national history, we've lived in a cocoon. Things have been very abnormal in America. Our country has been largely protected by the good, gracious, providential hand of God. Yeah, we had a great civil war, and that was awful. And then we went through World War I and World War II, and the Korean War and the Vietnam War. None of those compared to what is going on, for example, in Europe and other parts of the world, what's still going on. My point is, and I do not mean this as a put-down to our congregation, it's a put-down to me as well. We're soft. We're very, very soft. And we don't know what suffering really is. Now it appears that this country has been begging for judgment, just begging for it. Do you realize just this week, just this week, one of our government agencies, I don't remember, got in front of a law that in California would allow you to kill a baby 28 days after it was born? That is happening in our country. Did you hear any outcry about it? Why didn't I know that, somebody says. We don't have any sense of moral outrage anymore. It's like the frog in the tea kettle. This stuff just keeps riding and we just say, ho-hum, ho-hum. Well, what will they think of next? Our country is begging for the judicial hand of God to strike it. I don't know whether the Lord's coming soon or later, but I do know that judgment is going to come soon. It's coming already. It's already here. We're already suffering some of the pangs of it. Well, there's backlash. In times like these, people have to find somebody to blame. Who did Germany find to blame? The Jews. They're still finding the Jews, but they're also finding us. And in various ways, the temperature of hostility is rising. Jesus says, don't be shocked. 
I want you as my disciples not to go, Lord, what's happening? I don't understand. Are you coming? Come quickly. If they hated me, and the world always has, they will hate you. If they beat up on me, they will beat up on you. Now, I don't mean everybody in this room is going to go down to the sword. But I'm saying to every believer, because you are a believer and because you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're identified with him. No, you're not, you're not perfect like our Lord is perfect, not about to be, nor am I. But this stuff is going to come our way because God is going to see that America gets, gets its share of what the rest of the world has been suffering as long as you've been alive. So hunker down and buckle up. Jesus said, just as my family didn't resonate with me, they didn't believe in me. They did later, but they didn't believe in me. They had said they lived with me. So it is in this world, you who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to catch some of the backlash and some of the backlash is going to be blood. I had a dream 20 or 25 years ago. I've seen pictures of the place. It was in Europe, actually. I think it was the place was the site of the Bastille and French Revolution. I was in jail, and I remember they came for me to drag me out. Some of you will remember this. Their dream was so to drag me out to kill me. I don't know how many other, you know how dreams are. I don't know how many others were in the bloodshed. And what got me as I came out was not the fact that I was going to be killed. I've got as much coward in me as the rest of you. But that's not what shocked me. What shocked me was the people just gnashing their teeth over me. And I would just think, what did I ever do to them? Well, I'm saying, I'm observing what Jesus is trying to get across. Truth is always a threat to the power of lies. We saw that in John chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. It always has and it always will be. Let's go back to that. Jesus is talking about the judgment. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world. That light is preeminently L, capital L-I-G-H-T. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the ultimate example of that. And people, human beings, this is the judgment of God upon the world. They loved darkness rather than light. Because why? Because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And if you are the embodiment of light, not like Jesus, none of us is there. Way too high bar. But if he is reflected in you, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. That's what light does. It exposes darkness. 
next verse. I didn't have it up there. That's okay. You got the point. Well, opposition to light generally takes two forms. Intimidation and suppression. In the case of Jesus and his enemies in that day, and the Gospels make this clear, the surface problem was politics. At bottom, there was hostility to light, forces of evil seeking to suppress what is good embodied in him. Nothing has changed. We see our whole culture convulsed with that same demonic dynamic. Jesus told us explicitly if the powers and pawns of darkness put a bullseye on our Savior, we can be sure they're going to do it to, to us. Now, I want you to notice next where it says that Jesus was unwilling. Get back to my text. He was unwilling to move about in Judea. That was in the south. At bottom here, the restriction of Jesus What does that have to do with us? See, when I'm reading the text, my mind always turns on this kind of thing. That's just a historical footnote. It's that, but it has more significance. Here in this restriction of Jesus' movements is that clash of light and darkness. It's not just politics, not just Jews being worried about the popularity of Jesus or jealous of it. That was there. But underneath it all is something satanic. That moral hostility is the engine that incessantly clashes, that tends to drive all the surface issues and hides beneath them. For example, this will probably surprise you, but then since I first said it, I don't mean I was the engine that caused everybody to think it, but I was saying it before I knew anybody else was saying it. I've observed this for a long time, what drives things. We've got so many issues out there. They're everywhere. I won't get into the details. I mentioned one already, like this child killing, murder. Behind all of these issues, nearly all of them, maybe all of them, is a desire for sexual anarchy. What the devil do these people want in this world? It's crazy. What's going on? People, what is going on? How could they be so mindless? We all know this is stupid, don't we? I mean, you take these gender issues. You can't be serious. You really can't. Well, you've got degrees up both arms now. How can you be saying and thinking this stuff? It first hit me years ago when I was reading the British historian Paul Johnson. Really a good read. He wrote a book called Intellectuals. And he had a chapter on major intellectuals in the 20th century and some going back to the 19th century. Not people way back. People whose names most of you have probably heard. And I read with interest each chapter. It wasn't even his point. I repeat, it wasn't even his point. 
But most of these people, including psychologists, including some literary figures like Ernest Hemingway, you know that name. Most of them were perverts, sexual perverts. And as I say, that wasn't even his point. He just covered that along the way. And it was striking as I went from chapter to chapter to chapter. There's a common denominator here. And what do these people want and what do they want in our country? You could not satisfy this country today without just opening the gates and just allowing full-on sexual anarchy. That's what people want. That's what's driving them. That's demonic. Absolutely demonic. And they'll be satisfied with nothing less at the end of the day. All right. So Jesus, we note next, moves strictly in sync with his Father in heaven. Let me read those verses. Let's start again with verse 3. His brothers therefore said to him, why don't you get out of here and go down to Judea and all that? Look, no, I'll explain this further. No one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. Look, if you're doing all this stuff, you got to get out there in front of it. Not even his brothers were believing in him. And Jesus says, my time is not yet. What's he mean by that? The world can hate you cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it. So he was unwilling to walk in Judea. It doesn't say he was unable to. He was up north. Unwilling, not because he lacked the courage to face his glowering enemies in the south. Because Jesus, it was because Jesus was determined that his every movement he said this in John chapter 5, verse 19. His every movement would be in lockstep with the Father in heaven. It was like a mime, I've told you before. Whatever he saw the Father doing, that's something we, it's impossible to, whatever he saw the Father doing, Jesus did. Father went left, he went left. Father went right, he went right. Father said this, he said that. His words and actions were perfectly aligned with the will and the directions of his Father in heaven. That's why he was unwilling to go, because it was not his time. It was not his hour. More about that. That's why we can say, I read that and I start thinking. What import does that have for me and for you here in the 21st century? Well, Whatever our response or reaction is to his word, his teaching, that's precisely the response or our response and reaction to God the Father in heaven. For Jesus is what? God in the flesh. And if he is perfectly aligned and seeks always to be perfectly aligned with our Father in heaven, those of us who have Jesus in us through his spirit, we too will seek to be perfectly aligned with them. So if I'm reacting to the Word of God, if I'm reacting to Jesus' Word, I'm reacting to the Father. Got an email from a guy yesterday. 
listens sometimes to my radio program. And he was asking me a long and involved question about the Trinity. Some I could track with, some I couldn't track with. Anyway, he was worried about his friend who had been kicked out of a church because he denied the Trinity. He denied the historical doctrine of the church or the Trinity. He said, I'm concerned about my friend. But the way I read his letter, he was kind of sympathetic to him. I said, I, I think you're right to be worried about your friend. The doctrine of the Trinity has long been established across Christendom. And if your friend's trying to undo it all, I suspect he has a problem, and I suspect the problem is moral. And this is just a smokescreen for his real problem. Another thing that I was talking about, when people begin to object to the scriptures as they're doing in churches, people are just peeling off right and left. There are problems, and usually those problems are moral. They're conscience problems. But when we're, Jesus stayed tightly aligned as we cannot. We are not Jesus. We're not about to be. Tightly aligned with his Father in heaven. He and his Father are like that. People who are aligned with Jesus, aligned with his word, will be aligned with the Father. There's no alignment with God without being aligned with Jesus Christ. There is not. So Jesus was trying to do the will of his Father in heaven. And in that respect, he stayed aligned with him. And that was because he knew his hour had not come. He was not hiding out up in Galilee. Oh, gee, I'm afraid they're going to get me. He was not afraid of anything. Oh, don't come for me. So I'm going to hide out up here from all the bad guys. No. The Lord Jesus had an hour. He had a time. He had a day when he was to die on the cross, when he'd give himself to his enemies without resistance. But he was not going to try to get in front of his brothers and show them something. Oh, I'll go down there. Go charging into Jerusalem. No, he wanted to be in alignment with his Father in heaven and not to take any precipitous actions. His, uh, and show that he was ready to die. Let me footnote here. It's a big note, but it's kind of a footnote. Martyrdom, which means martyr as a witness. Dying for Christ is not the hardest thing, folks. You want to know what the hardest thing is? Taking a bullet for Jesus, taking the sword for Jesus, that's not the hardest thing you'll ever face. The hardest thing you'll face is living for Jesus. That's the really hard thing. The harder thing is always to live for him, to die to yourself, myself daily. Do God's will and let the sword find you if God wills. He did not call you and me to rush out and be martyrs, but in the true sense of the word, to be witnesses. And lastly, martyrs, if necessary. The verse explains why Jesus is confining his ministry to the north. 
as opposed to Jerusalem and Judea. Hostility to Jesus is gradually mounting like water starting to boil. And he wants to be strictly in step with the movements and the will of his Father in heaven. So really what we have here underneath this same old thing is a perennial opposition of forces of darkness to the moral presence of light. That's what's going on here. The truth is always a threat to the power of lies. Always has been, always will be. Let's never forget that. The pressure from Jesus' family to do God's work the world's way, and it happened more than once, is enormous. I read that. You can read it as history. It is history. But I look at it and I say, what significance, what does that have to say to Jim Andrews and his congregation today? It tells me what is clear, what I've always seen in almost 60 years of this ministry, the pressure to do God's work the world's way. That was his brother's. is enormous. There's always pressure. His brothers wanted him to go on an ego trip. There's always pressure for God's people and for God's leaders to go on ego trips, to go on pride parades, a chronic temptation that must be resisted. It has always been the case, as it still is today, that many Christian leaders in conducting their ministries want to find ways, here's the bottom line, want to find ways to share the shine with the Spirit of God and to horn in on the glory of His successes. But God has said, Isaiah 42.8, let every minister in every church remember this. God said, my glory I will share with no man. And if you want to horn in on it, you're going to get yourself in big trouble in whatever you're trying to lead. Ironically and normally, God's way is not the American way. Oh, we Americans are in love with big. That's not normally God's way. God's way is not normally the big stage or the big media way. But it's literally, my opinion, I'm going to show you in just a minute. It's literally the weak way, not the strong man way. The quiet way, the still small voice, remember that? The still small voice, not the earthquake, not the fire, that's the American way. Not the loud or pyrotechnically. Coming here as a pastor and I've got on my brand suit, you know, week after week, all the stuff going on behind me, light, smoke, and everything else, says I'm a star. That's a bunch of, I'm going to say it, crap. God's way is not the Ballyhoo way. That's not God's way. I see that a lot in modern evangelistic endeavors. Now, where did I get that? Did I just invent that out of my own mind or some kind of envy? Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. The Apostle Paul is talking about the time he had some kind of, we don't even have to discuss what kind of health issue he had, but it was something that embarrassed the heck out of him. And here he was, 
running around in Corinth and sophisticated places preaching the gospel. And he just felt embarrassed by whatever it was. So to keep me from becoming succeeded because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that Paul had had, a thorn was given to me in the flesh. A lot of you sitting here this morning know exactly what a thorn in the flesh is. <laughs> Everybody has a thorn in the flesh, right? I'm kidding. A thorn was given me, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. All right, next verse. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. Lord, uh, this, this sure hurts my public image. He didn't say that, but that's what he had in mind. I pleaded that it should be taken away. But he said to the, me, and he says to me, and he says to the church, he says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect, made complete in what? In weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions and calamities. So when I am weak, when I am weak, then I am strong. Listen, what I have to say may surprise you. I have always had, from the time I was in seminary, always had a, a conflicted relationship with the late Billy Graham. God used him to do a lot of good. But if you know the backstory, as I do, you know that the outcome of Billy Graham's ministry, because of all the hype and all that stuff, in my opinion, did the church a lot of harm, and we're still suffering from it today. All the show, God's not big on show. All the hurrah and bombast, the way that I could get that in detail, it's still hurting us today but a lot of people were saved. God's way is not typically the strong way, strongman way, all the lights and blast, pyrotechnic stuff. Get rid of it. In effect, his brothers were telling Jesus, I'm going to put it in my language had I been there and been of their spirit. Hey, brother, if you really want to be known, you have to be shown, guy. This feast, there are millions of people down there, is the perfect showcase for your powers. Nobody wants who wants to impress people does these kinds of things in the corner. You don't do them in the center of Nebraska. Look, Jack. Go to New York where there's all the media and all the press. Go to L.A. Find a big stage and make a name for yourself. These brothers were ahead of their time. They were, Jesus' brothers were Hollywood promoters before they were ever Hollywood promoters. They were advising Jesus where to go to make a bigger public splash. Or for somebody like me, he's a hillbilly. Get out of West Virginia and find the biggest stage in Israel. If you're the real deal, they could not have been further off Jesus' page. He did not come to glorify himself, but his Father in heaven. Which brings up another observation. It's not new to you, but it is biblical. 
You've heard the observation, familiarity breeds contempt. We've seen that before. Jesus said, a prophet has no honor in his own country. Several decades ago, there was a best-selling book. You can look it up. Don't do it now, please. Winning by Intimidation, written by a successful professional who worked on that premise. And he was saying to all us little people here in southwest Portland area, look, any of you want to be successful? Look, you got to know how to play the game. That's what Jesus' brother taught. Listen, you need a different address. That's the first thing. New York or L.A. or Atlanta, someplace like that. It can't be Lake Oswego or Tualatin or Taggart, any of those places. And you need a big car, really. And you need to fly in on a plane, swoop down, you know, all your entourage getting off. Then they'll know if you're an architect, you're really among the best. Or if you're a real estate guy, you're big. You got to let people know you're big. Come with all the paraphernalia. So that's what they were telling Jesus to do. Jesus says to them, I'm not going to make it as far as I wanted to unless you want to stay here through your adult Bible fellowship hour and all of that. Jesus told them, I'm not going to do that. You go. You guys go. You're free to do whatever you want to. I am directed by the will of God. Should always be our watchword to be directed by the will of God. God's time is the right time. It's the only time that is the right time. Let that always be our watchword and something else. Probably have to close with this. You say, <laughs> wait, wait. The operation of the sovereignty of God, listen carefully. This pastor, and I think most people in this church, we really believe in the sovereignty of God. Absolutely. But many people give a bad name to the sovereignty of God because they do not hold it in balance, in tension, with another truth, and that is the free moral agency of man. That is with due diligence. Jesus was letting the Father execute his plan, but he was not going to get ahead of the plan. He was going to stay up there in the north until the Father gave him the green light. Well, I certainly believe with all my heart in the sovereignty of God, but that is no excuse not to exercise human due diligence because that's often a tool that God uses in working out his plan. So Jesus says, I'm staying put. You can go. Go on down there. Have the good time you usually have. I will come when I get my cue from the Father in heaven. Then I will move down on the way less traveled. I will be not moving with all the pilgrims, the thousands and thousands of pilgrims. I will be kind of out of sight and out of mind. And I'll show up when the time is God's time. Well, let us always remember that. Always remember that. There is God's time, and then there is our time. I've been that those places many times in my life where I kind of wanted to rush things along. But just wait. When I came out of seminary, I was in a 
a little church had about 50 people when I got there. Had about five when I left. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, the church grew and uh, didn't become any great big deal. And then I had troubles. And they broke my heart. And I was just constantly praying. And I had opportunities to leave. Some that on that scale would have been good opportunities to leave. Double the money. One guy goes to my mother and says, tell that crazy young man of yours to get out of there. If he will come over to Pineville, we will double his salary. We'll buy him a car and do all that sort of thing. There's something in my human spirit, in my flesh, you know, the kind of one to rush God along and uh, make a move. And I had several of those opportunities, uh, each one a little bit flattering. But they all were, I knew in my heart, I found out as I prayed, it was not God's will for me to do that. And then one day, at the end of about seven years, I got a call from Denver. Somebody wanted me to come and teach in a Bible college there, and that proved to be God's time. And that changed the whole trajectory of my career. And I spent 21 years in academia there and then teaching in seminary. But it was God's time. Not everything went hunky-dory, but I knew it was God's time. There was never any doubt about that. In your life, that job, you may want to rush things along in your dreams, your ambitions. Wait on God's time. Pray. Seek God's will. Don't be rushed. Don't be pushed. God's time is the right time every time. It's a blessed thing. And Jesus waited on God's time, and then he went south. God's time is the right time, folks. But I know one thing. If you don't know Jesus Christ, right now is the right time for you to receive him. What have I got to do? You've got to recognize that you're on the wrong path. You've got to recognize that you are a sinner. You, that means you're lost. The wages of sin is death. Just like I was lost. The rest of us here were lost. You've got to recognize that. That you need to flip. You need to give your heart to the Lord Jesus. Quit being an outlaw. Before, before God, that's what you are. Humble yourself. Yes, I said, hey, most of us Sitting here, we have, like all human beings, but maybe you have more of an inclination to be a little proud. You've been successful. You've kind of made your way. You're pretty secure. Get over it. Get over yourself. You are lost. You are a sinner. And if you keep on this path, you will go to hell. <sighs> yes, I said it. God meant it everlasting damnation, but you can have everlasting life. You can have life and that more abundantly. There's your hope. But you've got to do something. What have I got to do? Say yes to Jesus. One time I said yes to Aussie. She just pursued me and pursued me and pursued me. <laughs> and I said yes to her. She said yes to me. We said yes. It was easy after that. <laughs> she took me by the hand. has been leading me for 65 years the way I ought to go. She didn't hear me. 
hearing aids. It's probably a good thing. All right. You can do that right in your seat. You don't need to do any handstands. God is there. He hears everything you th- He hears everything you think. Say yes to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good day, a good day to be before you. Let's sit here together to worship your great name, to thank you for all of your goodness, to thank you most of all for our great salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of our sins through his atoning sacrifice. We pray that you will move our hearts, those of us who are believers, in right directions, directions that we've talked about this morning, that you'll also move us, our Heavenly Father, to back off of our wrong directions and to do things the right way at the right time. We ask in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.